You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Morning. Our passage for today is John 8, 30 through 37. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Before we continue in that, let's bow our heads right now and pray. Father, you are good. You are wise and sovereign. You have planned good things for us to make us more like your son. You have purposes for us in our life. Father, we are sorry for doubting you, for not trusting you, for turning to other things for comfort and refuge when you alone are our safe hiding place and our good Father. We ask that you'd send your spirit now to convict us of sin, lead us in righteousness, grab a hold of our mind's attention and our heart's affection, and set our minds on you, Jesus. We ask you to meet us now, God, wherever we're at. Some of us hurt and troubled, struggling, some of us winning and walking forward, God, meet us where we're at and carry us on into conformity to your Son. Use your word today, God, to powerfully change us, to set us on a new trajectory to following you. In your name we pray, amen. So, uh, before I uh, uh, preach right now, I just wanted to make sure I said one thing, which is we do have a member preview tonight. So if you're here and you've been around for any time at all and you're interested in finding more about our beliefs, our mission, what community here is like, I invite you to come and join the pastors, one of the pastors tonight at 6 o'clock here to go through our membership class essentially. So that's tonight. That's all I'll say about that. Now, let's talk Bible. We've been in John chapter 8, which is uh, a continuation, obviously, from John chapter 7. It's this one scene where Jesus is interacting with Pharisees, interacting with the Jewish community of his day. And really, if I were to summarize what the theme, what Jesus is trying to get at in his teachings and in his conversations through John 7 and into John 8, where we're at today, Jesus is emphasizing spiritual formation. What I mean by that is the process of becoming more like the person you will be in eternity. Each and every one of us here, with our daily choices and the truths we believe or the lies that we believe, are becoming more like the person that we will be forever in eternity. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, says it like this, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Truly, we are becoming more like the per person we will be forever. Now, the greatest mission of our life, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, the greatest mission, the quest of your life is to have the image of Jesus formed within you, to become more like him. The primary barrier to this mission being realized in your life is the lies that you believe and the lies that I believe. Therefore, whether or not we will be successful in our conformity to Christ is if we can replace lies with the truth. So as we're continuing on in this intense conversation, Jesus, he's been having with the Pharisees. He has stood up and said, I am the light of the world, which means I've come to expose darkness. 
He says, come to me and I'll be your point of reference for all of life and make sense of everything. Take my claims, take my truth into the center of your life and build out from there. He has said that to the Pharisees. It's got him in some trouble. But now where we're at, some, some of the, the Jewish community is listening in on that conversation. And it says in verse 30 that they believed in him. You'll see that in verse 30. They believed in him, those who were listening to him. But as we keep reading today and into the coming weeks, you're going to see that Jesus tests this belief and reveals that their belief in him, it's superficial, it's not genuine. And we get to find out why their belief is so fickle. It's because something else is more central to their life than Jesus' teachings. Another way to say it is they have adopted ideas and lies that they cannot let go of because it is their vision of the good life. Each and every one of us here have adopted a vision of the good life. What makes life meaningful? What makes life worth living? Or in simpler terms, what makes you happy? What will bring you happiness? Each and every one of us, just like them, have adopted a vision for the good life. And the truth is, if they were to yield to Jesus and accept his teachings, accept his call into discipleship, they would have to receive his vision for the good life and turn away from their own. And so the cost is high. It's too high. So they will fight tooth and nail to keep the illusion that they are in, the fantasy they are in, rather than live in Jesus' reality and follow him as his disciple. So here's our points that's going to guide our study through these few verses. One, believing lies leads to bondage. That's the first thing that we're going to see, that believing lies or practicing sin, it's going to lead us into bondage and into slavery, spiritual bondage. Secondly, though, Jesus counters that with discipleship. Discipleship with Jesus leads to freedom. And thirdly, the gospel is going to come for us along the way. So three points. Believing lies leads to bondage. Discipleship with Jesus leads to freedom. The gospel comforts us along the way. First, let's look at these lies that are believed that lead to slavery. So Jesus, like I said, he stood up already, and he said that he is the light of life, which means he's going to invade darkness. Think about that, that illustration for a second. If Jesus is the light, that means by the very nature of being light, he is going to penetrate darkness. There is no other way that's going to go. It's like gravity or photosynthesis or thermodynamics. It is what it is. Light always penetrates darkness. Jesus won't resist penetrating darkness. He can't. So then he turns to these Jews who have believed in him, and he begins to penetrate the darkness. He begins to confront them a little bit. Verses 31 through 32, read with me. Jesus says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That sounds good so far. Jesus is a rabbi. Everybody knows that, so it's common and understood that he'd be inviting people to follow his tradition, his way of living. And he says next, if you do this, you will know the truth. Sounds great. Who doesn't want truth? Who doesn't want the right way to live? But then he says in verse 32, and the truth will set you free. Ooh, Jesus has just hit a nerve. Jesus has just said something that they, they don't like. So they reply in verse 33, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? You hear the, the offense in their voice? This is almost repulsive to them. They, in one moment, have believed in Jesus. It just says that in verse 30, and now all of a sudden they literally question him and challenge him. Has there ever been a time in your life where maybe you've injured yourself, you cut yourself or twisted your ankle, and, and there, that injury is swollen, right? What happens when you experience swelling? You guard it. You protect it. You don't want to brush up against anything. You don't want anyone to touch that thing because it's sensitive and it hurts. And so you guard yourself. And likely what happens when someone touches it or when you bang it against something is you overreact, you flip out, you scream. Jesus is getting very close to something very sensitive for these people. They have a strong reaction. It's almost like what he has said is just unbelievable. What Jesus is getting close to is a lie that they are believing. 
and they can't help but overreact. And now look at verse 37. It shows us just where this goes. They're not just going to hostily challenge Jesus. It's going to turn violent. In verse 37, he says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Something else does. Something else is most central. And so it's going to escalate there. They're going to try to kill him by the end of this chapter. He knows what's coming. So the question is, what's the lie that they're believing? That, that you know, swollen thing, that sense of that they want to guard, that they don't want to let him near. What's the lie that they're believing? And I'll say this. We know this is about lies because Jesus is inviting them into the truth. He says the truth will set you free. Therefore, they're believing lies. What's the lie? Look at their challenge to Jesus again in verse 33. Examine that with me. He says, they say, excuse me, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now, obviously, they know their history. What they, they know they've been slaves before to Egypt, to Assyria, to Babylon, to Medo-Persia, here now to Rome. Like, they know they've been slaves. That's not what they mean. The lie that they believe is that there's nothing wrong with them spiritually. That's what they mean. They mean that they're without flaw, they're without deficiency, they're without weakness because they're the offspring of Abraham. They're the chosen people, they're elite, they have the law, they have the traditions, they have the temple. They say, look at our resume, look at our storied history. We're the chosen ones, we are fine. We're not slaves, we're not inferior and weak spiritually. One rabbi, just after Jesus' generation, writes that all Israelites are kings. Now, that was the mindset in the Jewish community, that they were spiritually elite. Now, that mindset, okay, that there's nothing wrong with us, that we're the purists, that we're spiritually elite. Imagine that line of thinking now in the backdrop of the Greco-Roman Empire, which is what, this, which is what the backdrop was to this time, and then they're in the early church. Now, I've been studying the Greco-Roman Empire recently. It's really fascinating because you will see that the Greco-Roman Empire was outrageously immoral, outrageously outrageously perverse, outrageously unjust, worse than it is today in our cultural moment. And this is the context of Jesus's life and ministry. That was the context of the early church. And so this mo- in this moment, this Jewish community is likely comparing themselves to the Romans. We're not like them. We might be, you know, under their thumb right now, but we're not sacrilegious pagan idolaters. We're not enslaved to anything. We're not alcoholics and perverts and gluttons like them. They need help. Others need help, but not us. We're beneath no one. The lie, here's here's the answer. What lie are they believing? The lie they have believed is that spiritual health and maturity is based on comparison. You get that? They're comparing themselves across the board and saying, we're not like them, therefore we're doing fine. Now, that's a really low standard, if we're honest, isn't it? Because all you got to do is find the worst person, the most struggling person, compare yourself with them, and then feel pretty good about yourself. It's not easy. It's not hard to live in this illusion. This is a very easy illusion to create and a very easy illusion to sustain. I don't need help. They need help. I'm not weak. They're weak. It's very easy to live in this illusion when the standard is the Romans. (laughs) So today we look at our degrees. We look at our age. Look at how much experience we have. We look at how many books we've read, how ordered and moral my life is. It's just so easy to keep this illusion alive and live in it that I'm doing fine and I don't have any glaring weaknesses. I'm not in desperate need because across the board, I am better than most. So if you think to yourself right now, okay, you're, I'm preaching this and you're hearing this and you're in your moment right now thinking, you know, I have no particular error I can think of. I have no sin I can think of. I'm doing fine. You're in the illusion. You're living in that fantasy and you're in trouble, more in trouble than most, because at least if we're honest and we realize I need help, I need someone to get me out of the spot, you can at least begin that journey. But if you think you're fine, if you operate under the assumption that you're fine spiritually, you're in trouble. 
because there's really little hope that you're ever going to move forward. So Jesus now does what? He corrects this self-delusion, their lie, and tells them rather what the standard is of spiritual health and maturity. The standard for whether or not you are a spiritual slave in need of freedom is much higher than comparison. Look at verse 34. Jesus answers them. He responds to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's the standard. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Anyone who practices, anyone who does sin is a slave to sin. If you sin at all, you are a slave. And the interesting thing here, the thing that I find interesting at least to note, is that Jesus, he, he leaves no room for something less severe than slavery. Jesus applies the most humiliating, lowly concept to our simple, run-of-the-mill, culturally acceptable sins. Not just big bad ones, but any kind of practice of sin is slavery and leads to slavery and makes you a spiritual slave. He could have said those who practice sin, you know, you're in need of a little improvement, you're in need of a little therapy. Jesus could have said that, I suppose, but instead he says he chooses a concept that implies that we are in desperate need of outside help, that we can't do anything in our own strength and in our own wisdom to fix our situation. We're at the mercy of sin. We are weak and helpless. We can do nothing to change our own status as slaves. It was true then, it's true now. Now, you should think of this then. Here's the proper way to think of this. If you were to like update terminology, kind of like translate this into our time, I'd say you should think of this as addiction. We are addicted to sin. We hear the word addict and we think of substances or like taboo behaviors, but Jesus is saying that any sin, any sin that is practiced, it has an addictive power to it. It will make you an addict. So you can be an addict of gossip. You can be an addict of judging others. You can be an addict of people-pleasing or pride, just as much as alcohol, just as much as sex. We really need to think deeply about this concept that Jesus is teaching here. He isn't simply saying if you sin, you're in bondage as if we just like meet some criteria and are categorized as enslaved to sin. Jesus is saying that the practice of sin, the doing of sin repeatedly over the course of time, it actually has this disabling, deformative effect on us. It overcomes us, enslaves us. Second Peter 2.19, in talking about false teachers, Peter writes this, they promise others, them, freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now look what he says. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So do you repeatedly practice any sin at all? <laughs> is there a sin that just occurs routinely in your life? That means that you are in bondage and that you need help. Now I want to think about how this plays out. Think about this with me. We are beings. Each and every one of us are beings with minds and hearts and emotions and a will in a body. And those components of our being, they have this dynamic relationship with one another. What I mean by that is this, what you let into your mind will settle into your emotions and then your desires and then work their way out into your behavior. But then here's what happens. That behavior that we do with our bodies it will solidify that idea deeper into our beings so that ideas literally become a part of our instincts and are written into our muscle memory. So literally, when a lie enters your mind and then you begin to live by, by that lie, practicing sin, your being will become enslaved to that lie. You will do no other. You will, your mode of operation will just be autopilot sinning. You'll be unconscious of it, unaware of it. It will be habit. And just to show you how this works in daily life, have you ever uh, gotten in your car, rolled out of your driveway, rolled out of your parking spot, whatever it may be, going somewhere you always go for me, Taco Bell, 
okay? Have you ever just driven to a place you always go to, and about halfway through your journey, you like snap out of it and realize, I've zoned out that entire time, yet I haven't crashed my car, I haven't run over everybody, like, what happens there? We, you all do, we all do, we zone out while we drive, and yet somehow we get to our destination just fine. That's just muscle memory. That's just us on autopilot, because we've driven that journey over and over with awareness and knowledge. We've trained ourselves to go on autopilot. This is just how we are as beings. This can happen to us through practice and repetition over a long period of time. Now, a more serious example, okay? And uh, I'm not saying basketball is sinful. Don't hear me say that. But idolatry is, okay? Think about Michael Jordan with me. How many of you guys have seen The Last Dance? Anyone? Last Dance? Thank you. Good. Now, that dude... We all know he worked harder than anybody. That's what he's known for, being the hardest worker there was. He showed up early to practice, put up shots before everybody. He stayed late after every practice, put up shots after practice was over. All, why? So that his body would be able to score at will, regardless of how tired he was. Every single shot from anywhere on the court was written into his muscle memory. Now, he worked hard. Why? The last dance tells us repeatedly, repeatedly in those interviews, he said he wanted to be the greatest. I wanted to be the greatest. And repeatedly in the documentary, he would also weep because he still wishes he could go, he could go back and play. It torments him. It literally haunts him. He still has to be the greatest. Now, that need to be great, it began as a thought in his imagination which seeped into his emotions. Then he used his body to realize his thoughts and emotions until a habit was deeply formed in him. Now in his prime, he scored at will. He was the greatest. It was autopilot, but now sitting in a mansion with no lack in his life, that autopilot cannot be turned off. And these lies that he has believed that, that we must be the greatest, <laughs> that we must just be significant, it torments him. He can't escape it. There's nothing wrong with basketball, but there is something wrong with idolatry. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, your sin might be severe or it might not make anyone in this room blink, but either way, your body and its actions have agreed with a lie for so long that you have become an addict and a slave to that sin and that lie. Now, the destructive bondage of lies, you'll notice as I'm talking here, it has a duration of time. We've done it for a long, long, long time in our lives. And it has an intensity to it, meaning we've literally united it to our being. We've integrated ourselves with that lie in the deepest ways. There's a duration and an intensity to the bondage of sin and lies. And thankfully, Jesus comes along as a great teacher, and he gives us the counter way of life that's going to match stride for stride the bondage of these lies and these sins. Jesus is going to show us that there's a way of life that has a duration to it and an intensity to it that's going to unravel and heal and renew the damage that these lies and this sin has created in our life. So now I'm, I want to move to discipleship with Jesus, what he's inviting us into, and how it leads us to freedom, okay? Discipleship with Jesus leads to freedom. Go back to verse 31. Here's Jesus's invitation. Here's his instruction for us. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, I did a word study this week, all right? I got into some of the, I got into some of the original language. Now, the word abide there, the word abide it's meno in Greek. Now everyone say meno. Go ahead. Good job, class. Wonderful. Now when you find the word meno in your Greek Old Testament, it is translated often as hope or endure or be patient or dwell. Now the reason why you consult the Greek Old Testament is because the biblical authors in our New Testaments used the Greek Old Testament. So when they use a word in the Greek, it's likely being derived from the meaning in the Greek Old Testament. So there's a relationship between the two. Basically, what I'm saying is we understand what Jesus means by seeing how it was used in the Greek Old Testament. Abide means hope in, or endure in, or be patient in, or dwell in. So 
Therefore, to abide, it's less of an action, although it includes that, but it's more than that. It's a commitment, right? And that is reinforced by the fact that in this instance, the verb abide, meno here in Jesus' language that he's using, it's in the aorist tense, which all that means is it refers to an ongoing state of being with no end in sight. So what Jesus has in mind here when he's inviting us into discipleship to abide in his words, his teachings, his vision for life, what Jesus has in mind is a long duration of devotion to his word. But then, okay, in John's gospel that we're in right now, this word alone, abide, meno, it appears 16 times. John uses it a lot. And in every single one of those instances, it refers to either Jesus' words in us or us in them. It seems to give the impression that to abide is to be united with, integrated with, as if Jesus' words and I are inseparable from the inside out. I believe them, I've taken them, I allowed them to plumb the depths of my being, and I've enacted them into my life. I've tested them, I've verified them in my living and in my doing. So what Jesus has in mind here is an intensity of devotion to his word. So if I'm going to try to define what meno means. I'd say it's a posture of ongoing commitment and intense devotion to Jesus's teaching. So if I'm abiding, if you're abiding, it means I'm settled from here on out to bring Jesus's words internally and enact them externally so that my entire being, from my mind to my head to my actions to my habits, is increasingly free from the bondage of sin. Now Jesus underscores everything I'm saying here in verse 31 when he says, if you do all this, you are truly my disciples now, back in ancient times, to be a disciple of a rabbi, it means I am abandoning everything, my career, all I've known, my way of life, and I am adopting a totally new way of life, a new tradition, a new trajectory. It's radical. It means I leave behind my nets. I leave behind everything, and I'm joining him now. So it really underscores the ongoing, severe commitment of discipleship. It means from here on out, I'm with him. So I hope you see the total picture here. It's more to abide. It's more complex than meets the eye. It means we move through life with a posture of ongoing commitment to Jesus' teachings, and then we practice them. It's really a new way of thinking, a new way of being. Now, this is a counter, this is a counter to the damage of sin, the bondage of sin, isn't it? Because just like when we let lies into our mind, then our emotions, then our desires, then our behavior, which in turn reinforces those ideas into our being through habit, instinct, muscle memory, so that we're literally enslaved to them. So committing to Jesus' teachings for the duration of our lives, intensely uniting to them. It's the process of liberating us from those lies, of healing that damage and destruction. Now, Robert Muholland, I'm going to quote him, quote him several times now. Uh, he writes this book called Invitation to a Journey. He's a pastor counselor. He calls the bondage of sin harmful habits, deeply ingrained attitudes, troubling perspectives, destructive ways of relating to others, unhealthy modes of reacting and responding to the world. All of that has to be undone. And like this Jewish community, the bondage of sin, it runs deeper than we are aware because why? We've excused ourselves from needing help. We've ignored its presence and practice for so long because we have evaluated ourselves our spiritual health by a false standard for a long time. I'm doing better than most. I'm doing better than most. And so we don't have the eyes to see just how in bondage and enslaved to sin we are because we have the wrong standard. 
So we let ourselves off the hook. So we're addicts. And Jesus is saying, I can come and undo it all. I can come and, and heal you. I can give you a new way of life. So here's what this boils down to. I think here's what Jesus wants us to know as disciples of him. Following Jesus, it requires long obedience in the same direction. You must take the long view in your life. Freedom that he's offering here, freedom, it's not something that happens overnight. It begins by abiding. It continues by abiding. It's perfected by abiding. It's a lifelong journey. Now, that's really going to bother some of you. When I say that freedom, it's not overnight. It's not a quick fix. It takes a long time. It's this progressing, increasingly experienced kind of thing. It's going to bother some of you because you want results yesterday. <laughs> you know, you're tired of struggling. You're tired of sinning. You just want it to end. Now, that's not realistic. And I would say that if you think that freedom is going to happen quickly, you're likely deeply conditioned by our instant gratification, technique-driven culture. We think if we do the right method, very soon we're going to see results. Simple answers, pat answers. But Robert Muholland again says this, quote, Often our spiritual quest becomes a search for the right technique, the proper method, the perfect program that can immediately deliver the desired results of spiritual maturity and wholeness. Or we try to create the atmosphere for the right spiritual moment, that perfect setting in which God can touch us into instantaneous wholeness. If only we can find the right trick, the right book or the right guru, go to the right retreat, hear the right sermon, instantly we will be transformed into a new person at a new level of spirituality and wholeness. If we're thinking we are changing ourselves by offering the spiritual discipline, we are deluding ourselves. We may be able to keep up that discipline for a week, a month, several months, but sooner or later we're going to fall off the wagon and discover that the bondage to sin is just as alive as it ever was. It is still there. It hasn't changed. All those weeks and months of disciplines haven't done a thing to transform that deadness into life in Christ's image. If anything, the deadness seems even stronger because it has been fasting so long. So we go on a gorging binge. Whatever that brokenness is, we find ourselves indulging horribly in it. Then guilt and remorse begin to build up. We get back on the wagon pick up the discipline, grab our bootstraps, and try to pull ourselves back up. Spiritual growth, what I'm saying here, spiritual growth is not an event. It's a lifetime. Spiritual disciplines, crucial. <laughs> Practice spiritual disciplines, but they're not something that we do to control an outcome and get what we want in our timing on our terms. They are an offering to Jesus in trust that he, by his grace, will change us in his timing and on his terms. So Jesus doesn't ask for you, if you want to experience freedom, he doesn't ask for you to complete a list, to do this and do that. He asks for you to abide. Ongoing commitment, intense devotion. One last quote. Robert Mulholland says this, freedom is not some spiritual quantum leap forward. I think we think like that. Like freedom and spiritual growth is like that felt movement forward. That might not be true. He says it's the long, steady process of grace working far beyond our knowing and understanding to bring us to that point where we are ready for God to move us into a new level of spiritual awareness and a new depth of wholeness in relationship with God in Christ. There is simply no instantaneous event of putting your quarter in the slot and seeing spiritual formation drop down where you can reach it whole and complete. So here's Jesus' expectations for you. Come and follow me. Abide in my word. If you do, you will be set free. But let's be realistic then. Change happens over time. The way it happens is by abiding, living in a posture of ongoing commitment, intense devotion. But here's now what the rest of what Jesus says. We haven't touched this yet. If you remain on the journey with Jesus, verse 32, he says this, you will know the truth. Future tense, okay? If you do this, commit intense devotion. If you do this, 
you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, when we hear the word know, okay, in our Western English minds, we think information intake, like classroom, like content. And that's a part of it because our heart can't love what our mind doesn't know. We have to know sound doctrine. We have to know what the truth is. But knowledge, biblically, is far more than just what we apprehend with our mind. Knowledge is something that's encountered with our mind, our spirit, our heart, our body. In other words, knowledge or truth is an experience that summons our entire being. It's not just simply a thought. So you'll see this in the Old Testament where it says that Abraham knew his wife and they conceived, (laughs) right? That kind of knowledge, it summons our entire being. That's not just a mind exercise, that's an experiential thing. Or when God is said to know his people, he hears their suffering. It says he is drawn, his compassion is stirred up within him and he acts and he steps into history and he redeems, right? Knowledge is not just, I know this fact, it's my whole entire being, is integrating into this thing. So it's not without reason that God commands us to love him with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength, to engage him with our entire being. So that's how freedom takes place. The more that we, over time, are committed to Jesus, intensely united to his words, what we're going to find is that his truth is better than lies. We're going to actually have knowledge, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and through our entire being, that sin and lies are hollow. They overpromise and underdeliver. Now listen, none of us in here changes a position or does something different, you know, you know, believes something else, unless we're persuaded by that in our lived experience. What Jesus is saying is, in your lived experience as my disciples, you're going to come to find out slowly but surely that the allure of sin is a lie. You're going to have an easier time turning away from that and receiving my truth and walking forward in obedience. The sin that used to shackle you, you're going to see past like the instant gratifying illusion of it, 10 steps deeper into it and the remorse and the grief and the shame and the destruction that awaits for you on the other side of that sin as you walk forward in discipleship with Jesus. He is going to convince your whole entire being over time that his way is better and you will be free. You will actually be free. Those things will be powerless to you, less alluring to you, less attractive to you, you will lose your taste for them and begin to have a fervency and a taste for for righteousness and obedience. Like the very thing that used to bore you and sound like it was a restraint and a shackling kind of thing will be transformed into a joy. Jesus is going to set you free, he says, if you begin this journey. Ongoing commitment, with intense devotion to his vision for life, his way of things. So you have to change your expectations. Freedom is not going to happen overnight. It's not some quantum spiritual leap that happens in an instance. It's that long, steady process of grace that Jesus is working in our lives. Everything takes time. And hey, listen, practice spiritual disciplines. Practice solitude. Pray, read Scripture, consume Scripture, but understand that those are a loving response to the grace of God. It's an act of faith, believing that God's using them to bring about new measures of freedom. It's not something that you're controlling in order to get what you want according to your agenda and your timing on your terms. That won't bring freedom. It might curb behavior. It might fix something in the meantime. But all of a sudden, like Robert Mulholland says, that same old thing is going to pop up because it's not really being addressed. If you abide my words, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. You can have those lies and that bondage undone and experience real freedom over the course of time. You're becoming more like the person you'll be forever. Now, I'll be honest, guys. This is heavy, isn't it? Like, this is hard, because I want change. I want freedom yesterday. 
like many of you. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of being weak. I'm tired of being in my own head. I wish it just didn't exist anymore, but this is Jesus's way of things. This is the only way it's actual true change if it takes a long time and he's in it and we're not in control. So it's going to be hard, which is why I love where Jesus concludes here now in verses 35 and 6, where he concludes with his gospel, the gospel that comforts us along the way. We need to equip ourselves with the gospel on this journey so we have a power and we have a comfort as we move forward as pilgrims. Look at verses 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus has already initiated this process of freedom. He will carry it on to completion. It will be final one day. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now Jesus, he's using a concept that's familiar in his time, the concept of indentured servitude, where you would serve in a household for a set number of years until you were released. The difference between a slave or a servant And the son of the household, it's massive. The son is set to inherit the majority of the household. He'll take the mantle of patriarch. He has authority. He has that position of authority that no one else has. So Jesus is saying, if the son of the household has set you free, you're really free indeed. It's going to happen because he alone has the authority to make that verdict to bring that about. Now, biblically speaking, how does Jesus set us free? It's not only merely by giving us teaching and insight. Jesus is a great teacher. He he equips us with the way of discipleship and teaching. It's wonderful. But Jesus does a deeper work. He's not just a teacher. He's a savior. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. So he's talking now about the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It has set us free. Now, what I want to do is I want to just meditate on the power and the comfort of the gospel of the cross, how it is going to be our companion in this lifelong journey of discipleship, which will have its good days and its bad days. Here's how Jesus has set us free. First, through forgiveness. Forgiveness. What a wonderful thing that we're forgiven. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Doesn't that sound so wonderful? That your ledger has been cleared. There is no wrath against you. There is nothing between you and God now but love. Psalm 103, 11 and 12. Let this wash over. What an amazing verse here. What a great truth. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Your sin, it's been forgotten. The Father chooses not to acknowledge your sin which means as you struggle and mess up in this slow and steady transformative process of discipleship, you're forgiven. Your sin and your regrets and your mistakes do not define you. The Father does not acknowledge them, so you shouldn't either. Move past them. The Father has moved past them. That's what Jesus has won for us. Forgiveness. Clean slate. You'll be tempted to believe that God's mad at you. You'll be tempted to think, when's the other shoe going to drop? It's not going to. The Father is not mad at you because He has forgiven you because of Christ. Secondly, I love the imputation of Christ. Imputation. Meaning, Jesus has transferred to us something and has taken something from us. Romans 3 says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, meaning we are declared innocent. It's this legal verdict. We are declared innocent by His grace as a gift. We didn't earn it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means 
wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus became that by his blood to be received by faith. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, another, says this, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus had never committed sin. He's perfect, righteous, blameless, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, calls this the great exchange. Jesus takes our rags, our blemishes, our sin, our record on him, and then transfers to us his perfect, righteous record. So now, guess what? We stand before the Father. We've been imputed Jesus' righteousness. He sees us as no different than His very own Son. So really, I mean it. We mean it when we say there's nothing between you and the Father but love. And so Romans 8.1 is true. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's not mad at you because you are dressed in the very robes of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Paul says this, I love this verse, it's changed my life. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. I don't even judge myself. So Paul's not in his own head. Paul's not beating himself up. Paul doesn't let anyone else's opinions of him cause him to be stricken with guilt and condemnation. Why? How is Paul freeing his conscience and his mind from a sense of guilt? He doesn't carry that around with him. Why is that? He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted, which means I'm not acknowledging my sin. That doesn't mean I'm not a sinner. Why does he have that freedom? It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, if the Lord is our judge, what's his verdict? Righteous. And so I don't need to care what another person thinks. I don't even need to care what I think of myself because what does God think of me? His verdict is in. I'm forgiven. I'm righteous. So continue on in this journey with all its highs and lows, knowing that God's not going to change his mind about you. He's committed to you. Thirdly, <laughs> the gospel has earned us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we overlook this. We don't talk about this, but what a gift it is to have the constant companion of the very love, the personal love of God in us. Jesus says this in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. He dwells with you and will be in you. Later on, John 16, Jesus continues, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. You believe that? What? It's better that Jesus departs and ascends to return to heaven. Why? He says, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. What a gift the Spirit is. He says, if I go, I'll send them to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world, of, the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, if I collapse everything Jesus is saying about the Spirit here into one statement, it's this. The Spirit is the helper sent by our Father, sent by our elder brother Jesus. The Spirit will never leave us. He reveals truth to us, so we live in truth and not in fantasy and illusion. He dwells with us. He's in us as a constant companion. He convicts us of sin. He assures us of our righteousness and that we no longer have an accuser. We are not alone in this journey. God is with us and in us, and he does not condemn us. He does the opposite. He assures us. And when we practice solitude, the Spirit will bring to mind these truths and comfort us. And lastly, why we love the gospel, why this is such a comfort and power on our journey. The gospel means Jesus is coming back to make all things new. He's already begun that, prom that process. He is going to finalize it. Philippians 1.6 says this, what a great comfort this is. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you Jesus has already begun the process of setting you free. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He promises you, if you abide, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And now he is saying, I am going to 
finish that process and make you free throughout your life and certainly one day. So stop being anxious. Stop striving and trying to control things. Melt into the promises of God that He is going to finish what He starts when He returns. Now here's our final destination, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The penalty of sin, it has been paid in full. The power of sin, it's already waning. And one day the very presence of sin will be removed. The freedom that we long for, the freedom that we're increasingly enjoying, one day it will be all that we know because sin and lies and sadness will be totally gone from existence. This is the hope we have. So guys, keep going. (laughs) Keep going in your discipleship with Jesus. It takes a lifetime, but he is with us and he forgives us. And he rejoices over us as sons and daughters and as children. And he will return and make all things new and make you new. C.S. Lewis says that if Christianity was not true, it's of no importance. And he says, if it is true, it's of the utmost importance. But he says, there's one thing it cannot be, which is moderately important. This vision for life and what Jesus wills to do in us and in this community, this is worth living for. This is worth throwing ourselves into fully and to see what Jesus will do in us, to be set free and to be that kind of community. If you abide, you will know the truth and you will be free. And that's a promise and he will do it. Let's now pray. Let's pray. Father, we call upon you to do what you have promised, to carry out your work in us and to make us new. Lord, give us patience and long-suffering. Give us a great trust in you. Help us not to despair or be discouraged or be anxious. Lord, help us not to believe lies, the lie that we don't need help because we're doing better than most. God, help us to look at our lives and examine ourselves honestly and see where there is patterns of sin, patterns of behavior that are leading us into bondage and into slavery. Lord, set us free by your word. Help us to have ongoing, intense devotion to you. Lord, we believe that you will finish what you have started. Lord, help us to reap those things and feel those things and experience those things even now presently in our life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.